Well, good morning again. Today's, <clears throat> today's passage will be a little familiar to you. It's uh, one that's commonly quoted. It's in Micah chapter 6 and uh, verses 1 through 8. But I'm going to hopefully provide some new insight uh, to this to you today with the Holy Spirit's aid. Uh, and he will help me with my speech, hopefully. But if you have a Bible, or I would suggest you open it. If you have a Bible app, or there's Bibles in the seats in front of you, I'm going to be hopefully not giving you too much Scripture, but jumping around a little bit in the Scriptures today, specifically in Micah, so that may be of some use. But let us read from the Old Testament, the book of Micah, chapter 6. Uh, please stand for God's Word uh, to show our respect for His Holy Word. I need a click. Thank you. Um, Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear the mountains. Hear you mountains. The Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people... What have, you, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before this exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my, the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Dear Father, as we turn now to the Bible, your holy word, we ask for your help in both speaking and hearing, in understanding and believing, obeying, living in the light of its truth and the light of the grace you've shown us. No mere human could ever accomplish all of this, but we look to the work of the Holy Spirit your spirit, your comforter, your guide, the spirit that rests within each believer. Let us lean upon your wisdom and not our own understanding and trust your Holy Spirit to aid us in all our needs. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if we have a key text to begin this, I think we do. Uh, verse 8 would be the main point of the passage. He has shown you, immortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? It is a popular passage that adorns greeting cards and hangs in some walls. Most people see it as a flag to fly under rather than a rudder to steer by. I hope through the Holy Spirit to give you some insight into the context and details of those words. Let me begin by asking all of you a question. Do orchestras need conductors? 
Frank Waltz or most would surely answer yes to that question, but after all, he is the current conductor of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. And I would imagine, although I haven't spoken to him, that all the members of the orchestra would agree. And if the conductor were be overcome by them or disposed by them in some kind of coup, and the members decided they were each going to play whatever they wanted to play, whatever their feelings told them to play, clearly the end product would not be very enjoyable. But the harmony of having a conductor, one source of truth that is there with the conductor, submitting to the orchestra score and bowing under the baton and the watchful eye of the conductor would, of course, have been forfeited. Each member would choose to do what was right in their own eyes. Now let me ask a second question. How are we to account for the absence of harmony in our world? One way of answering that, and that's the biblical way of answering that, is to acknowledge that we have deposed the conductor. That the Bible tells us that we have been created by God and for God, and yet we have been separated from God. And then we have been scattered by the imagination of our hearts. And so you find people saying, and you may often say to ourselves, well, who needs a score? We can make up the music as we go along. We can just play whatever tune we like. And whatever it is to me that's important, that's what's important. And whatever it means to somebody else, we'll just have to find its place. And furthermore, people might say the idea of a conductor, the idea of one who oversees us and so on, is foolish. And it limits my freedom and my happiness. Now, in this, you may not all agree. And you may find that the metaphor is too cliched. But people from all points of perspective, all kinds of people from different walks of life, people who would not agree on many things politically, scientifically, or whatever, would all admit on one thing, that the world is out of kilter, that our world is not in harmony. And we might find common ground on that topic when we read the news of the day or we see the events in our life. It feels pretty chaotic, that we do need some type of guidance like an orchestra needs a conductor. Our world is not only fractured, but it is fearful. It is a fearful place inhabited by people who are themselves increasingly filled with fear. There is foundation for fearfulness, and in 2023, we're dealing with a three-headed monster of chaos. We're dealing with it pandemically. We're coming from three years of dealing with COVID-19, and through the masks and the six-foot separation, and the isolation in our homes at times. And we've discovered a new form of loneliness. The loneliness of deep separation from our loved ones. The loneliness from not meeting here every Sunday as we did during COVID. And our daily lives and routines have been changed dramatically by the new normal. And then radically, or excuse me, not only pandemically, but also economically. We are comforted now by high levels, we are confronted now, excuse me, by high levels of unemployment or underemployment. Many people are affected by mountains of debt, and it will take years for that debt to be relieved or repaid. And government spending on solving these issues will lead to higher costs of food and material goods as we've seen in the inflation. I don't know if you know or not, but they did a study of Walmart general goods, and in 2019, prices compared to the last fall 2020 prices, that the average increase in price was 28%. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't get a 28% raise during that time. And then racially, 
Pandemically, economically, and racially, our nation has been fractured, and its brokenness has been highlighted in demonstrations that have come in the aftermath of racial issues. Fear of the police, fear of violence, fear of the lack of peace due to years of inequity and prejudice in America. Now let me make an observation on that. With the events of the last few years, objective morality has now made a reappearance. And what do I mean by that? Well, matters are immediately identified as either right or wrong. For years, it was everybody did what they wanted. Now, suddenly, things are right and things are wrong objectively. So right and wrong is back on the agenda, which is quite surprising because our culture, certainly over the last 50 years, has come to regard ethics as a matter of personal taste. After all, with no conductor, we can play any tune we want, with the only caveat being, as long as it doesn't bother someone else. But even that doesn't play much of a part. You may have seen a billboard on the highway that says racism is wrong, which declares an objective standard of right and wrong. And judging others different or inferior based on skin color is against the standard, or in America, it's actually against the law. But the, thing, the thought that occurred to me when I saw that was, isn't it interesting that it doesn't say something like, racism's a bad idea, or my personal view is that it's wrong. It simply says it's wrong, declarative and objectively. It's appealing to an objective standard of right and wrong because every honest person knows that it is wrong. We agree upon that principle, and that's a, that's a truth, that's a foundation. We are one race, the human race. And from a biblical perspective, it says so. Because when we turn to God's word, we realize that the Bible says there's only one God, and he created mankind in his image. And because of that, there's one morality. And there's, that morality emerges from the nature and character of God. Therefore, God is a God who says, I'll tell you what's right, and I'll tell you what's wrong. And we bow to that as Christians in, in Scripture. Paul, speaking to a lot of non-believers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he gave an address along those lines. He said, God who made the world and everything in it, made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved everyone, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul is affirming what the Bible declares is that we do not live in a random universe. We do not live in chaos. We live in order, even though it doesn't look that way. We are not here by chance, and we are not sustaining ourselves by our own endeavors. We are intricately put together by God's plan in our mother's womb, and all the days of our life were ordained by him before we were born. Each life matters, because in God's life, all life is created by him, and it matters. It matters to him. The sanctity of human life, the sanctity of all human life, is bound up in the fact that mankind was made in the image of God, and we are not a random collection of molecules held in suspension. We are not the product of time plus matter plus chance, but we were put together purposefully. Our genetic code was written by the Creator Himself, and that is why the Bible says if you take a life, you forfeit your own life, because each life matters. And the recognition of the sanctity of life 
is revealed not only in the way that we care for those in the fragile elements of life, like the widows and orphans, but in the way that we are prepared to acknowledge that capital punishment for such murder is not only legitimate, but it's divinely ordained in God's word. But the real question is, are we going to look at our own opinion of what is correct, or is we going to do what everyone else does? Can we look to the scripture to better understand what is right and wrong? We need something that is not an opinion, but something that is objectively true. We need a higher authority with objective truth to provide order and harmony in the chaos of life. And that is the role of the prophet. And in our scripture today, we're looking at the prophet Micah. What Micah is saying is, look how the chapter begins. It says, here the Lord says. He's not saying his opinion. He's not saying, I think this is a good idea. Or this is something I dreamed up or something that I have, have decided. He says, hear what the Lord says. And he's telling everyone to listen. Listen now. Listen to God. Because he asked me to say this to you. It is God speaking through Micah to God's people. And God is not happy with him, apparently, in this chapter. In fact, he is frustrated with them. And he has reason to contend with them and to indict them. This is almost like a court case. It's like he, God's calling us in the dock to stand trial and give witness. And if you read the first five chapters of Micah, God's people are not living in obedience to God. They've forgotten God. God is calling out their sin, their unfaithfulness. In chapter 2, it says that we lay in bed at night thinking up ways to sin. And it goes on to say we do what is right in our own eyes, finding ways to take what we want and act selfishly in our dealings with others. But if you go back to Micah chapter 6, in our passage today, uh, God's frustration is expressed in verses 3 and 5. Oh, my people, he says. Oh, my people. There's a sense of tenderness there. It's like, oh, come on. Oh, my people. Oh, don't you understand? You know, it's, it's almost tender in the way that God is speaking to them, even though he's, he's saying what you're doing is wrong. He's given them essentially a little reminder of his history in the next few verses. And you'll see that throughout the Bible, if you read it for any length of time, as God likes to say, I took you out of Egypt. I did this for you. I did that for you. He's reminding people that in the past, he has acted faithfully in care of his people. And he's reminding us that because he did that and because he is a God of his word, he will continue to do that. And we should rely on that. And it's a reminder to us, even in our own lives, as we look at the things that we have experienced, that God has acted in our lives. He has given us things that we didn't deserve. He has done things for us that we needed done. And that trust and that providence that we have received in our own lives should give us confidence and hope in that he's going to continue to do that the rest of our lives. And when he's reminding them of taking them out of Egypt, empowering Moses, Aaron, and, and, and Aaron and Miriam, Miriam with their leadership during the Exodus, and also talking about Balak and, and Balaam, how he took a situation where Israel's enemy was going to curse them and turn it into a blessing for them. And also when they went from Shittim to Gigal, which is where they crossed the river, and the river was raging and it was a flood. And the priests put their foot in the river and God stopped it and people walked across in dry land. And he's reminding these people who should know their history, hey, I did all this for your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. The God of Exodus was the God who was looking out for them. And God often reminds his people that he has cared for them in times of trouble and they can rely upon that care. Today, when you look to God, you have a reason to trust in his care and provision. 
not only based on these stories in the Bible, but also the way that he has provided for you and trust and hope that he will see us through this chaos. When adversity comes in this life pandemically, economically, and racially, we should look to God for his word, our source of comfort and strength. And when you feel the fear and we see the chaos in the newspaper, we need to ask ourselves, do I know God? Do I remember God? Am I trusting in God? Do I remember what he has done? And remind ourselves that he is in control, even when it seems like from direct experience that that's not the case. Micah was reminding God's people they had completely lost sight of all that God had done for them. They had forgotten God to the point that God says to them, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. He's saying, what do I have to do? He's, there's a frustration in that. But it had all become so tedious to Israel. It had become very tiresome to, to obey. They're saying, uh-oh, God's mad at us. What do we do when God's mad at us? Oh, yeah, we do burnt offerings. We do sacrifices. So I so said, we need to come up with a sacrifice. You know, that's kind of what the, the conversation is going in this passage. He's saying, well, let's see. Uh, we could do a, a, ca <clears throat> a calf that's a year old. Well, that's going to be expensive because I had to feed it for a year. Well, I'm going to do uh, thousands of rams or thousands of, of uh, streams of water. He says, uh, thousands of rivers of oil, it says. And what if I was like Abraham to offer my firstborn? Because they even say that at the very end. What do I have to do as an offering to you to appease you? Like, should I give up my firstborn? Now, the way we need to understand this, of course, is considering what Scripture tells us in other areas. And an illustration that's in 1 Samuel. It says... Samuel replied, this is where um, Saul, King Saul was doing an offering, and he wasn't supposed to do the offering. He was supposed to wait for Samuel, and he went ahead and did it. And Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. And like, I don't want you to try and appease me because I'm angry. I want your hearts. I want your relationship. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. He's not saying that the sacrifices were irrelevant, or the expression of devotion to God, like coming here every Sunday to sing and worship, is irrelevant. But God is looking for obedience in our hearts. He wants the other six days of the week, and even this afternoon, to align with what we profess here in our songs, and in our speech, that, we, that it should go beyond skin deep or be, go beyond the two hours here every Sunday morning. But God is looking for obedience. The topic of obedience is so repetitive, not only in the Bible, but if we're honest with ourselves in our own lives, how we choose our own way often and ignore God. We do things and we know, boy, I wouldn't want anybody at church to find out I did that. But we get tired, we get selfish, we, we get expedient, and we do things that are right in our own eyes. And we ignore what God wants. Maybe cheating on our taxes, maybe taking from our employer without asking, lying to neighbors or to my spouse. Often it is a small transgression. I was just, I was just looking. I just needed it. I just wanted it. But desire and selfishness can lead to more sin and more consequences. Look at King David. 
A man of God's choosing, right? A man after God's own heart. We've all heard that many times. He had success. He was king. He had wealth. He had defeated his enemies. But it was time to go out and protect the borders. And what did he do? He stayed home. He was bored. He went up on his roof. Why did he go up on his roof? We don't know. But he went off of his roof and he was looking around. And he sees another man's wife, Bathsheba, and stares at her naked beauty. <laughs> then he invites her over for a drink. Step two. Uh, yada, 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 and now she is pregnant. Uh-oh, her husband's off at battle, and, and his wife somehow got pregnant. So then he tries to cover it up by letting her husband Uriah come home from the battlefield, thinking that if her husband comes home and spends time with his wife, that'll solve the pregnancy problem. But when David invites him to go be with his wife, it's very telling here. It's a very small part of the story, but I think it's a very telling part. It says, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to celebrate, to have wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. Imagine how it felt in David's ears, hearing him say that. David had to see the irony. Indirectly and unknowingly, Uriah had a stronger sense of obedience to God than he did. And that must have made him angry. After hearing Uriah's call to God's standard, an objective standard of truth that David had ignored. So then David, realizing his terrible sin, repented to Uriah and said, I'm sorry. No, that's not what happened. He didn't repent to Uriah. What did he do? He sent Uriah back to the battlefield. He told his leaders to put him out in front of the enemy and then abandon him. Premeditated murder. The premeditated murder of the woman he slept with his husband. And after he was dead, <clears throat> he married Bathsheba. Later on in the story, God uses the prophet Nathan to remind David of who God is and how David had sinned. So when David was confronted by all that sin from Nathan, he finally came to his senses and he finally repented for what he had done. And despite how long he had denied his sin, he came to realize the full weight of his sin and he repented deeply. The result is he wrote Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, which is really long, but um, the point of it is that he acknowledged that God was in control, that God had the truth, that God was right and he was wrong. And he says that I have sinned. And at that point, it's almost like he wanted to unring the bell. It's like putting me a clean heart, renew my spirit, restore the joy of my salvation, he says in that. But the key verse in that is near the end. He says to God, he says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. He says, oh, you don't want a substitute. You don't want this. What you really want what, you're, what you want, the real sacrifice, is a change in my life. The sacrifice you deserve is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. He gets it. And that's what we see here in, in Micah, that same verse. It says, like, what, what kind of offering can we do to kind of push God away? Or we can give us a substitute. But when we look at our lives and our sin, we might want to ray. Well, excuse me, we might want to run away like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We might want to cover our sins the way they did with justification or just hide from God. 
We might want to make up for our sin by doing good works. And the Bible says in many places that's not what God wants. It's not works. Repentance and obedience. A contrite and broken heart and repentance. It has been said there is hardly any one passage in Scripture more generally misunderstood than our Micah 6.8 passage. Now you've read it, and I've read it, and you may find yourself saying, well, it seems pretty straightforward to me. There's essentially three points. I get it. You know, live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God. But let me kind of break it down to you a little bit deeper. To act justly is to act in such a way that is the reversal of what has been taking place. It means doing justly in accord with the will and purpose of God has been both manifested as he revealed to us in Scripture. So, for example, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, God says, execute justice for the fatherless and the widow and love the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. We live honestly before God in harmony with the people, especially those on the bottom rung of the ladder, especially those in need. Number two is to love mercy. In the, in the Bible, the Hebrew word for mercy is hesed. It's, it's spelled like C-H, but it's pronounced with that uh, Jewish ch sound, chesed. And it's not just mercy. It's not just doing something for someone or giving someone forgiveness. It's usually from someone in a position of greater power doing it for someone in lesser power. So it's the idea that, like, this person's in need. I can satisfy that need. That's chesed. That's mercy. And God, who is greater than all of us, shows great mercy or great chesed when he gives us grace. And that chesed or that forgiveness, that care for others, to love mercy, is a glad and spontaneous action born out of gratitude because we've received so much, because we've received mercy. We've received it from God, and so we carry it on and we pass along the peace, the grace, the mercy that we have received. And number three, to walk humbly. In other words, is to walk in submission to God's will. In New Testament terms, it's Romans 12.1. To offer your body as a living sacrifice as an acceptable form of worship to him. Humility means that I don't take myself too seriously. That I don't cherish exaggerated ideas of my own importance. Which, of course, is one's tendency. And it can happen when we're low on sleep or low on fuel or just frustrated by life to the point where we only can see inside our own head and don't realize that we live under God. Now, you say that those three points are fairly clear. How could it be misunderstood? Because of how this verse is attempted without the gospel, that's how it could be misunderstood. And without the bad news of our sin and our need for God, then it becomes a list of how I can make up for my transgressions through good works. And then it becomes just a display of natural virtue, a guidance for good works and merit badges. In verse 6, it says, How can I come before the Lord? And answer, I'm going to come before the Lord. The way I do it is by justly, loving mercy, walking humbly. It's just another version of a good God, if he exists, will reward nice people if they do their best. And part of the way of doing your best involves justice. It involves mercy, and it involves being humble about it. I can check those off. Let me make a list. Men and women, by nature, are keen to inflate their standing before God. So contribute to it on our own account through good works and our own endeavors. And so if the message comes across it, why don't you just go out and have a really good week and do your best and act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. You think, well, I could probably take a stab at that. 
but still we continue on in our selfish behavior. Oh, what a good boy am I. You can see the inherent danger in that thought process. If we define our righteousness by how good we're doing it, how well we have it together this way, and we use our good deeds to cover our shame instead of relying on God, then we never change our sinful behavior because we can just keep on going the way we are. Without the acknowledgement of sin and true repentance, the true gospel of a broken heart and a contrite spirit that David had to realize, but only after a long series of bad mistakes, right? A long series of premeditated sin. Reread Psalm 51 again. David admitted he sinned. He admits he's wrong. And God was right. He repents of his sin, his actions, and his guilt. He begs for forgiveness. He begs for the stain to be removed, the stain that won't come out. He asks for God for a clean heart and a loyal spirit. And he desires obedience in the way that he so blew it. And now he wants to get back to square one. Micah is not charting a path of acceptance with God. And I, for one, am thankful of that. And if you're a believer today, you should be as well, because when God comes to judge us on the day of visitation, on the, on the Lord's day, we'll have no basis to appeal on our good works. What does the hymn say? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Because if I'm doing my own assessment on the things I'm getting right and the things I'm getting wrong in my life, I'm not even getting a failing grade. I need to trust in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So not in our righteous acts, but in the righteous acts of the Lord. Let's step back to Micah chapter 5 for a second. In Micah chapter 5, it talks about that God will provide peace through his own chosen. That Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our righteousness Jesus is what saves. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to people. That's just in the chapter right before chapter 6. This is the gospel. Will you come before God? Then come in the name of Jesus. And in Jesus you'll find acceptance. Before Jesus left, he said, Whoever comes to me I will not cast out. And if we don't come by the way of the entrance, there is no other way. If we don't come by the way of Jesus, there is no other way. Only one name under heaven and earth can be found deliverance. And only in the mercy and love provided through Jesus Christ. And if we're worried about what kind of response we will receive, go to the end of the chapter, the end of the book of Micah, which is chapter 7, where the prophet says, Where is there another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant? overlooking the sins of his special people. You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfaithful love that though he is frustrated by us, he still loves us. And once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob long ago. What you essentially have in Micah 6, 8 are the credentials of our justification. Not through the things we contribute to them, but the evidence of our justification. If we are saved, we want to act justly. If we are saved, we want to show mercy. If we are saved, we want to walk humbly with our God. We desire his presence, and that's why we desire to come here on Sundays. 
that our regenerated hearts filled with the Holy Spirit would desire justice, love, love to give and receive mercy and forgiveness and in humility walk in closeness to our God and Father in this life and the life to come. Does an orchestra need a conductor? I would say yes. Do we need a Savior? Surely we do. Amen? Amen. We look to him as our advocate and the author and finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Gracious God, we have not served you as we ought. Alas, the duties we've left undone and the things we've done that are apart from you. So much of ourselves and our selfishness is taking hold of the way in which we live our lives. We desire to be the conductor of our personal orchestra. We desire to be the captain of our fate and seek to chart our own course. So we pray that you will help us not only to get on the wrong side of the of verse 8, God grant us that we may not attempt it without the gospel, that we may not proclaim it instead of the gospel, but that we may live it by the gospel. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen.